I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connections, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. Another really beautiful episode. My guest for today is Jess Springle. And we have this really beautiful conversation about how much insight she had when she was a teenager about whether or not she wanted to continue on with her eating disorder. We also talk about that that insight doesn't come in this big dramatic moment. It happened to her one day when she was sitting in a group and she was journaling. I think you're all really going to enjoy this episode. She has a lot to share and I had a great time talking with her. Let's go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am sitting here with our guest today, Jess Springle. Jess, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Jess, I'm so glad that you're here. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, who you are, and some of the work you're doing? So I'm Jess, and I'm currently in Austin, Texas, where I am a licensed professional counselor, and I have my own practice where I specialize in treating eating disorders really across the lifespan. Um, I see kids, adolescents, adults, families. Um, It's really my my passion project. I really love this work. Um, And right now I'm doing all virtual work because of the pandemic, but um, historically I've you know, worked in person and also before moving to Texas, I lived in New Jersey and practiced there and did a lot of the same work. Um, I've also worked at higher level of care in, uh, with, for eating disorders and psychiatric uh, centers. Um, but I mean, eating disorders is really, again, it's my like, just passion in life is working with folks who are struggling and helping them find recovery. Yeah. You know, you were you were younger when you started your eating disorder, and I'm wondering what it's like for you working with young kids that are coming in. And you know, I I I thought that I would only be able to resonate with 19 year olds because I started my behaviors when I was 19. I definitely can connect with everyone, but there is a little something special about a 19-year-old college student because that was when it hit for me. So tell me what it's like. Uh, I I truly love working with young people, um, especially, you know, especially younger teens, like that 14 to 16. And I, I mean, I would not be surprised if a lot of that is because of my own experiences and 
um, you know, it's hard to tack down for me, like when exactly my behaviors started. Um, I think, you know, it could be anywhere between like 10 and 13 in there. So I think I do have a very particular, like almost like a maternal, like protective feeling of kiddos at that age, because I know how hard it is to not really be understood or seen in those moments. And it's, I do think it's important to have, have someone who can see and hear you. And it's, you know, in some ways it's almost like I'm getting to sit with myself at that age and really like heal that part of myself. And I do think that's a lot of why I did end up doing the work that I do. And it has been extraordinarily healing and rewarding. Yeah. And I think it's also really wonderful that you can give people hope and inspiration that in spite of how young you are, when you start your eating disorder, you can still navigate through it and turn to full recovery. And so I think that's a really important message. Yeah, I think sometimes that can be a hard, I think because my experience did happen earlier in my life, that sometimes when I work with folks who are older and struggling, that can be, you know, my experience is not really resonant with them. And I don't often share it with them in the same way that I might with someone who's say 15 and really navigating that process for the first time. I do, you know, I think with younger clients, I am more inclined to share that aspect of, of my own life because it does, it does inspire hope and gives, gives kids the sense like, oh, okay, this isn't the like life ending experience that it feels like. Because you were told, I think, I, I listened to a, a podcast episode that you were on, and I think I remember you saying that you were told that you will not recover, that, that this is not something somebody can fully recover from. So how does a, how does a teenage mind process that? And, and I know this is an odd question, but how did you not use that as an excuse to stay in your eating disorder? Not an odd question. I think that's a really, uh, that's an on the nose question. Um, and, you know, a question that arguably only a person who has also struggled really knows to ask um, because, yeah, like, in, and in very many ways, it was fuel for many years um, because I was told, because I think that was really just the narrative at the time in treatment that, you know, similarly to say, um, substance use treatment that, oh, this is an ongoing process. You will never fully heal, which I think even the substance use world has shifted their language. Um, but I, I do think that that was really the messaging I got and not just from providers, but also from treatment centers that, you know, you will, you will manage this until you die. Like that was really the messaging that I got. And yeah, at like, you know, 16, 17 years old, hearing that was in very many ways fuel. I was like, well, okay, like, I guess if that's really the case, then what's the point? You know, it's hard to think back on that too, because of course, like now I'm sitting here as an adult and realizing like, of course there was a point, like, you know, wanting to shake my, my younger self, but it was, you know, it was really challenging to get that message and to navigate life after that message and realizing that, oh, like that's not, that doesn't have to be the narrative for me. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it doesn't have, this doesn't have to be something I manage for the rest of my life. This can be something that is fully healed and isn't something I'm like navigating to the degree that I was when I was younger. It amazes me. I don't want to invalidate your teenage years, 
But I do want to point out that's such an impressionable age. I'm still really like, it It took a lot of insight for a 16, 17 year old to say, because that's an age where we listen to what adults tell us. Well, not always, but you know, if an adult tells us something, that's what we internalize. So do you know how you had the insight to shift that? That's a, that's a good question. Uh, I was really fortunate in that I had a provider around age 17, 18, who was recovered. And it was something that, you know, up to that point, and I had been struggling by that point for many years, I had never heard that. I had never heard from another person like, oh yeah, like I went through this too. And I am, you know, my life is different now. And I think too, uh, my last time in treatment was when I was in college and I realized, you know, and, and granted, I think this was like a very simplistic revelation where it was like, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. Like I, there has to be another way. I mean, that was really it. You know, it was like a lot of blind faith and just thinking like, I can't sit in another one of these rooms. You know, I like, cause I, I, I can very distinctly remember like writing a journal entry while sitting in like a group room and being like, this can't, this can't be it. Like this really just, this cannot be what my life is going to be reduced to, you know, every, every so often cyclically for the rest of forever. Like I just can't, I can't do this. You know, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but you, you referenced, and I'm paraphrasing that it was like this simple, not simple, but almost, I want to say insignificant thought in comparison to what we think think, which is clients say to me, as soon as I hit rock bottom, that's when I'm going to turn it around. As soon as it impacts a relationship, as soon as dot, dot, dot. And I say to them, first of all, rock bottom sometimes is death, not reversible. And why are you going to wait until something so dramatic happens or traumatic? It is more like what you did, which is one day, which by the way, you probably did not change your behaviors that hour. Like I'm sure there was still some struggle, but that's when you said, oh, I don't want to reduce my life to this. And I think it's important that people hear that message. It is not the big dramatic thing that turns it around. No. And so, I mean, so often I think about certain events in my life that so small, like, you know, and, and those moments of like revelatory information. And really it was like very simple, like kind of sporadic moments of, oh shit, I can't do this anymore. Like this is just, and I, you know, I think college was a really good example for me of like, this is not, this is not a sustainable experience. Like, sure. I, I can make this work if I really you know, but you know, having two full-time jobs as a student and a person with an eating disorder, it's like, I don't know, there was this like moment of being able to zoom out and think, hmm, like, sure, people can work two full-time jobs, but like one of them doesn't, ultimately one of them suffers. And I, I knew on some level that thing that would suffer would be my education. You know, at that point, I wasn't even thinking like, oh, well, my health will suffer. My life will suffer. It was just like, oh, God, no, I, I don't want to sacrifice 
my education because that was just paramount to me. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, it's very rare that somebody says, oh, my health will suffer. It doesn't. I wish if it were that simple, Jess, you and I would not be in practice or we'd be working with a different population. It didn't work in my case, and it has never worked with any of my clients where I say, you realize medically you're actually getting to a really dangerous place. And they're like, "Eh," because that's not that that doesn't feel real to them. And, and there's, and in their minds, or I'll use my own example, in my mind, there were things that were still more important, which was weight, calories, food, gym, laxatives. Like then the medical stuff was like in the way back of my head, I was like, yeah, whatever. Right. And I think, you know, again, like having struggled for as long as I did and in such like a I don't know, I feel like when you're a kid and an an adolescent, they see this all the time with my clients now, because I do work with a lot of young people and adolescents. It's like, I don't know, youth is just so intoxicating. They're like, you you could fall. I, I There's like a meme that I've seen circulating that's like, you know, I'm at an age where if I fall in the shower, it's not going to be good. And I laugh every time I see that because I'm like, you know, at like, 13 or something, you fall in the shower and it's like, oh, that hurt. But, you know, at my, and not that I'm old, but it's like at 30, if I fall in the shower, it's like nothing good's happening. There's like, there's going to be, there's going to be a big bruise. So it's, it's just interesting to think about like, yeah, at that age, I had no concept of like, oh, something can really hurt me because really like when you're that age, nothing can hurt you or it feels like nothing can hurt you and nothing really can to the degree. I think that maybe it can when you're older, especially eating disorder stuff. I think absolutely there can be medical complications, but they tend towards looking a lot different when you are older and if it's been entrenched for a longer time. And I also want to point out with agreeing with what you said and going back to my example, which was I wasn't afraid of medical consequences. I was afraid of like weight, calories, exercise. Underneath fear of weight, calorie, exercise, all this stuff was intimacy fears, low self-esteem, maturity fears, anxiety, depression. And so that still trumped medical fears. Oh, absolutely. Right. The, the spiritual, the, the, the emotional pain that it was, was much more of a priority than physical pain for me. Also, I guess I was constantly in physical pain. I, I think I like to pretend for a while, like, oh, no, no, no. I didn't feel any like hunger pains or let's like, people used to say to me, like, are you hungry? And I'm like, no, I, you know, again, this is just in my own, my own way of trying to get through an eating disorder. And inside I was starving physically and spiritually, but physically I was starving. I think like, I, I think about that often as well, just the physical pain that I was in for years without and just accepted it. Like, and, you know, there was, it's just like this very like, oh, okay, yeah, this is just part of life now after a certain point and uh, like not questioning it. And in fact, it then seems like recovery is more painful because it's, you've gotten used to what is truly excruciating, hunger, physical pain, et cetera. And it's like, but somehow doing the thing that is quote unquote normal is so much more awful and painful. Yeah. It also makes me think of when when we talk about the 
the the physical pain in an eating disorder and how we feel like we can't tolerate it in recovery. As someone who abused laxatives in my eating disorder, I was constantly in shooting pains on in my gut, shooting and bloating from laxatives. Yet the bloating from food that to me was unacceptable. So it's interesting how how our mind just tricks us into bloating from laxatives is fine. Bloating from nourishing yourself and moving towards recovery is absolutely intolerable. That's such a good, such a good point. And, you know, probably something I'll think about with clients later. <laughs> because yeah, like there's, I think it's that certain kinds of pain are tolerable. Um, and I, I think, you know, back to my own experience and it's like, there was so much pain that was okay if I was the quote unquote perpetrator and because I could control that or, you know, quote unquote control that. Whereas if it were coming from another person or, you know, if there were some, if I was being rejected or if I was being harmed by another person, like, well, I, you know, I'm not in control there and I want to be the one that kind of has the last say which in very many ways is, you know, what was a big function of my eating disorder. It was like, this is a way for me to be quote unquote powerful, where I can be kind of the person who, la- who laughs last, which is, you know, I laugh because it's so, it's very much like a teenage mentality where it's like, you know, thinking that you have control that arguably we don't have any control in this life. And it took me a very long time to see that. Of course, I'm still grappling with that as most humans are. But, you know, at that age, at those ages, it, that seemed, it seemed like I had it worked out. Like I had, I had the answer, I had the key and that was what it was. I thought the same thing. I couldn't understand why other people weren't following my lead. Cause I was like, I got this down pat and I'm doing it pretty damn well. Except that it's, you know, thinking back, it's like, wow, this was a chess game that was rigged from the beginning. Yeah. And a horrible chess game. It's sort of like the Harry Potter, like wizard's chess, where someone is just like beating you through the process. But it's, yeah, you know, as a teen, there were a lot of things that I thought that I had on lock that, you know, in retrospect were very silly. I also want to say I'm nodding, but I really have never seen Harry Potter. So I don't know why I'm agreeing. Okay. (laughs) I'm like, oh, right, right. And then I'm thinking... I'm probably the only one in the world. So you don't have to explain that. No, you're not. I'm sure everyone minus me, similar to when I was in my eating disorder, everyone minus me, X, Y, and Z. Same thing with Harry Potter. Everyone minus me has seen Harry Potter, but I just wanted to point that out. I had, I have no idea. It's really just like, I guess what you would think of where it's like the chess pieces come alive and like harm each other. Like if, you know, if, if you were to, you know, oh, I, I got your, your pawn or your rook or whatever. And it's like the other piece like comes alive and like hits the other piece. It's very graphic. Um, but yeah. It's so metaphorical though to eat disorders. Why have I never seen Harry Potter? Potter comes, has its own problems these days. Um, you know, I, I think the content of Harry Potter is remains, you know, something near and dear to me. I read it when I was a young child but I mean, unfortunately, the author is very transphobic, and oh. 
Yeah. I did not know. Going on the, going on the tirade already. No, no, no. And, and this is where I, I didn't know. And maybe again, this is something that only I am not aware of, but, you know, please talk about that because you do do a lot of work with social justice and eating disorders. And so, yeah, that's, I'm glad you brought this up. Yeah. I, and I do think it's really hard to divorce social justice from eating disorders at this point, um, because there are so many folks who struggle, who don't fit that quote unquote stereotypical narrative. And, you know, we seem to, I mean, even like with, in our, within our field, there's so much misunderstanding about what a, what an eating disorder looks like. I have, I have conversations with other therapists often they're like, oh, well, I thought this was just something that impacted adolescents or just impacted girls. And it's like, I, I, you know, in some ways, I wish that were the case where it was like this very select population and we could really target that. But eating disorders are like every other mental illness in that they don't discriminate. And it's, I think it is a huge social justice problem because there's not a lot of understanding about how it shows up in folks of different races, different sizes, different orientations and genders. And then also there's really not a lot of like legislation, funding, policy around really creating spaces that are positive for healing for all people with eating disorders, not just, you know, that stereotypical sufferer. So it is, it's something I talk a lot about. It's something I work a lot on. um, And it's, it's an exhausting part, I think, of being an eating disorder provider because it's hard to fight against years of conditioning that our field has enacted that we really can't, you know, we can't undo into just in one day or just as one person. There's a lot of effort and energy that needs to be put into it. Is there something that you can share that you're working on or is, is that too broad of a question to be like, so what are you working on just with social justice? You're like, mm. You got a couple hours? Yes, a couple hours. But um, actually, interestingly, this week is um, Advocacy Day, which is something that is, has, I believe, has been created in part by the Eating Disorder Coalition, which is a really great nonprofit to take a look at. Um, and I, I work for the Alliance for Eating Disorders Awareness, which is a nonprofit. And they also do a lot of um, work on trying to change policies. And that's really the purpose of Advocacy Day is people who have been impacted by eating disorders, professionals, meet with their legislators and try to get certain bills passed in order to improve eating disorder specific um, policies. Have we made any movement or any movement that's that we can say is significant enough that there's been change starting to get implemented or are we not there yet? That's a good question. Um, a few years ago, there was a law passed um, called the Anna Weston Act. And that, I mean, that was on the floor for like many years. Yep. And that was, that was huge. That was a really big deal that that passed that, I mean, that was a big deal for eating disorder legislation. And this year, I I believe that one of the laws is the same one that it was last year, which is trying to get nutrition coverage for folks with Medicare and Medicaid. I am amazed at how difficult it is. And, you know, I need to look at my own self for 
playing part in it. I, I, in parts of my practice or most of my practice do not take insurance. I am amazed at the amount of people that take Medicare that do not, I'm sorry, do not take Medicare and Medicaid. I will, I will say, you know, my caveat to that, because as someone who does take insurance and I'm currently in the process of unpaneling, uh, which is a fancy way of saying I am no longer going to be taking insurance, it, it is really challenging to run a business and be held captive in a way by the insurance companies. They, you know, unfortunately, it's, I think there is a really low value placed on the work that we do. And insurance companies, you know, and this isn't like a blast against insurance companies, but it's our American healthcare system is not great. And I don't, you know, we don't get paid enough to really have a sustainable practice if it's all insurance clients and we don't want to burn ourselves out. And I mean, my experience with insurance in the past year alone has been terrible. There's been a lot of clawbacks and a lot of just not, not really, again, not really valuing the work that we do and trying to avoid paying for it at all costs, which is really frustrating. And I also think it doesn't value the work we do, not only within the 50 minute session, but all the collateral work that we do outside, especially working with eating disorders. I know I'm constantly in contact with medical providers and dietitians and psychiatrists and family members and treatment teams and all these things. And so to add on top an extra, say, 45 minutes to do the paperwork to go into insurance where you just lost an hour of pay, it, 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 it adds up to the point that, as you said, it's not sustainable in what we, in what people get reimbursed. Right. And I do think that that's a huge component of eating disorder work that, and that's, I mean, it's not to say that other specialties don't have their own similar type of work, but I do think eating disorders require such an intense amount of collaboration with other providers. And that's, that is like just free work at the end of the day, I, it's usually, you know, if I do have a client who is private pay, I try, I explain that. It's like, you know, this money, the money that you're paying me does not go just towards our session time. It go toward, it goes towards all of the work that I do for on your behalf outside of session, which is, it's a lot most of the time. Um, it's pretty infrequently just that 50 minutes. Yeah. It's so interesting though. And I think it's because we work with eating disorders and there are so many levels of complexity that I thank God we collaborate with medical dietitians, psychiatrists, like this, that's something that I hold on to dearly because some of the clients we work with, I don't want to be the only one with eyes on this client because they're so complicated. And when I say complicated, I'm not saying that in a negative way. But when when we're concerned about medical issues, when we're concerned about if they're following the meal plan, when we're concerned concerned about their mood or self-harm, I am so grateful I can reach out to the psychiatrist. I can reach out to the medical doctor. I can reach out to the dietitian. A hundred percent agree. And, you know, there have been times where with clients that have a number of, I'm to think how, how to phrase it, like a number of complex factors in play who I, I was the only person 
with eyes on them for a bit, because I think that's just sometimes how the field works as well, that sometimes folks can't access care or just don't want to access the care because it's scary. It's like being the, being that only person is, you know, as a provider is pretty terrifying. And once more people are on board, I am always extraordinarily relieved. Is just it is wonderful to be able to collaborate with people who get it yeah. and can hear what what we're talking about and validate the work that we've done. I know this sounds like it's going in a different direction, but it's kind of not. How do you collaborate with parents when you're working with adolescents? Because that can prove to be incredibly beneficial and it can also backfire and silence the 14-year-old. So how do you navigate through that? Oh, goodness. So I, as much as I in, enjoy working with teens, I have taken a bit of a step back from it in the past, really since the pandemic started, because it's really challenging to do family work, in my experience, virtually. I, I don't know if that's the case. I'm sure that's not the case for everyone, but I have really found that that's just a difficult thing to manage over a computer screen. And it, yeah, I do think also, I, in moving from the East Coast to the South, that the way that families present and interact with treatment providers is very different. So I think that that certainly turned me off <laughs> to um, adolescent work for a while, but I do intend to get back to that. And all of that to say, I think it is extraordinarily important to collaborate with parents, despite being in part the hardest part of the process. Um, or at least in my experience, and I'm sure if any of my previous or present clients are listening to this, I could probably attest to the complexity of that. Um, because I think, you know, eating disorders don't occur in a vacuum. And that is, it's always a really challenging balance to strike in not blaming the parent, because that's never my intention, but also, you know, encouraging them to take accountability for the ways in which that they have harmed their child. And I think that is a hard sell. It doesn't matter if you are the like healthiest parent that exists, that's going to be a hard sell because you don't want to think about the ways in which you harmed your child and may have contributed negatively to their mental health. But realistically, every parent has contributed negatively to their child's mental health at some point or another. It's just a matter of how do they repair or how do they, again, take accountability. So, you know, sometimes it's a lot of like meeting parents where they're at. If they don't want to interact with me. I have to honor that on some level. I can try to continue pushing, but, you know, in my experience, especially up north, not as much down here, a lot of parents were very hands-off, mm. did not want to, did not want to interact with their child's treatment. It was here, I'm going to drop them off. You fix it, which, okay. <laughs> and, you know, I was really fortunate in that despite that I did have a lot of success with clients and I'm really grateful for that but I do think about that sometimes like how much more success might there have been if parents were involved and you know I, I think there's a balance in a way because I know that FBT or family-based treatment is a really big um, there's a big push for it in our field because it's evidence-based um, but you know I, I think there has to be a balance between like FBT and like no involvement whatsoever like there's got to, you know, there's got to be a middle ground and it also has to be very specific to the family because every family system is different and certainly not every family is uh, going to be a good candidate for FBT. Um, my family certainly 
was not. So, you know, I, 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 with that in mind and with that lens, I know there's so many families that can't pull that off. Did you, did your family try that? And by the way, FBT, everybody is family-based therapy. I'm not sure if we've talked about that earlier on the show, but so your, your family did not. That, I don't know that that was really pushed back then. Um, and I also, my eating disorder was not really identified or recognized by my family until it was like nearly time for treatment. So I, I don't know that, um, I, I don't know that that intervention would have made much of a difference anyway. Um, but yeah, it wasn't, can't say that it was really something that was as prevalent as it is now back then, or at least not in my, not my experience. Can I ask you sort of a provocative question? Yes. I I like provocative questions. By the way, did you really feel like you could say no? Just kidding. No, of course you could. (laughs) Do you feel that your parents didn't know what was going on because they weren't, they were in denial or they were busy in their own lives and were not paying attention? Or was it that you didn't want anyone to know about the eating disorder and hit it really, really well for a really long time until it got to the point that you couldn't? And by the way, that the truth could be somewhere in the middle. I was going to say, it's a little column A, a little column B. Uh, interestingly, I have gotten feedback. Well, I did get feedback, I think, when I was younger. Um, I had one of my best friends at the time in high school said, she was like, literally the minute I met you and sat down with you at a lunch table, I knew you had an eating disorder. So as much as like, I like to think that I was, you know, expert, uh, hider extraordinaire, I really was, was not, um, you know, it was something that was, I wouldn't say it was evident. You know, I I think if a person really cares about you and sees you, they're going to pick up on things that are, you know inherent to what you're going through, like that person did for me. But I, I don't, you know, I, I think my parents didn't want to acknowledge it on a lot of levels because it was scary. And there was a lot less information about eating disorders back then. Granted though, like I just, I was just listening to your episode with uh, Maria Hornbacher, who was like, I just adore her. And like her book came out in the nineties and was like this hugely provocative but I don't even provocative, but a book that really allowed people to feel seen. It was like, yeah, people are struggling with this. This is a real thing. Mm-hmm. And however, I, you know, I don't, as much as like that book was a big thing, I don't think by the time I was struggling, it had still like spanned or like, it certainly didn't reach my parents, I wouldn't say. And again, like, I think they had a lot going on for themselves that it was really not it, I think it was protective for them to not acknowledge it. And it was protective for me because I didn't want them to. So it, it's definitely a little column A, a little column B. Um, and I, you know, I certainly don't blame them for not having seen it. I, you know, I, I think, again, I, I, I have a lot of, I get, I try to give my parents at that time a lot of grace because trying to navigate life with a child with a serious mental illness is just really hard. And being in denial about it makes a lot of sense. Do you feel that when you went to treatment as an adolescent or a teenager, that you picked up new ways of acting out in your eating disorder? I know that's always a really big fear of parents. They say, I don't want to send my 16-year-old to treatment because they're going to learn more behaviors. I 
would not say that my parents had that sort of insight um, at all. That was not something on their radar, but I did um, absolutely pick up. Oh God. I, I, I mean, I learned more about having an eating disorder in treatment than I ever did like on my own. And, you know, mind you, like I, I would say like the height of my eating disorder was in like during the height of like Finspo era, which uh, Finspo is like Finspiration, where it's like people post really just awful, just awful things on the internet. Fortunately, I feel like that's not quite as much of a thing now. It is and it isn't, but it was very much a thing when I was like a young to mid teen. And like I, you know, I had access to that. I could look at that all day if I wanted to. Whereas, you know, even so, I would say that what I, le I learned most about different types of behaviors from other clients in treatment, but also I learned from the program itself because they, you know, there would be talk about certain behaviors and I was like, I don't do that. I, what? And, you know, and it's interesting, I think about the first place I ever went to treatment, they had like a very intense like exchange counting system. I had really never struggled with that in particular. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, this is, we are, we're in trouble here. Um, because that became very much a, a big part of my eating disorder at that point. So it's obviously treatment is helpful in so many ways, but it's also, you know, of course, if a, if a person is in a place where they're going to absorb something, they're just going to absorb it. And I was definitely in a place where I was going to absorb it and run. You know, I, it is, I don't even know where I'm going with this next statement, but it's, it's a tough call. I say to parents all the time, if we can keep your adolescent or teenager out of residential, even PHP, that's what we're going to do. Because you're right. You cannot avoid, uh, a therapist saying in group, you know, what, what happened when you felt like you wanted to self-harm and someone who had never self-harmed is like, wait a minute, what's this thing you call self-harm? I also say though, on the flip side of the coin, that letting your child die from an eating disorder is not an option either. So we have to do it. And it depends on, you're right, where they're at, what are they paying attention to? Because Unfortunately, we live in a day and age where there's self-harm in movies. There's binging and purging in movies. There's all these things where there isn't going to be a therapist there where you can say to the therapist after group, that kind of triggered me or during group, that triggered me, right? Right. It's it's a fine line. It's a lot of what feels like a lose-lose. Obviously, like no one wants to have to go to treatment. Well, maybe I'm, I don't want to generalize that, but I know that a lot of folks like going to treatment or a parent sending their child to treatment really is like worst case scenario, last, like last resort, because it is a huge uprooting of your life. And also there is really high potential for harm. Granted, there's also high, high potential for healing. And it's like really a cost benefit analysis. Like, okay. Like, is my kid going to die or am I going to die if I don't go? And, and is it worth the risk of like learning new things and, you know, hopefully being able to process through that with other people at the place or, you know, with my team? Yeah, it, 
it is. It feels like a lose-lose, but it is, it's a pretty intense cost-benefit analysis, I think. It is. I've also had to have some really hard conversations with parents and say, your child is not going to heal in this environment because you're so stuck in the diet culture yourself. And that's a choice you've made, but it's not, it's, it's impacting your own child who has an eating disorder. And we need to actually remove them from this environment, strengthen their sense of self, strengthen their recovery side before they go back in. And if you choose yourself to do some work on it, that's your thing. But just, I can't make parents go to therapy. I can't make a whole family stop living off of the, the latest fad diet. I can't do that. I can talk to them about it. I can express my concern and the impact that it's having on their child with an eating disorder, but that may never change. Yeah. And I mean, that is, that is truly, I think the heartbreak of this work is sitting with a kid or even an adult who has been like, who is reflecting on their experiences with their parents and realizing that, you know, their own parents were really stuck in their own disordered stuff or diet stuff and couldn't really come out of it or just were not willing. Because I, I don't think that it's always a matter of, you know, similarly to eating disorders, it's, it's not the person's fault necessarily. It's a really hard decision to come out of something that you've been conditioned to believe is right. And but that doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that as that person's child that you are not going to feel just devastated by that. Yeah. And as the therapist to also feel devastated by that because you, yes, you can have conversations and really approach with gentleness, kindness, curiosity, and still just be, be really frustrated on behalf of the client because you want their parent to do better. And, but you, yeah, you can't force them. It is, it is a really awful dance, honestly. <laughs> and I, I do wish that it were an easier dance to do or that more people were willing to, I don't know, engage in that dance with me, um, aka parents. But it, I don't know. It's a, it is a hard sell, especially if that parent is there on behalf of their kid and not on behalf of themselves. Yep. Yep. I also think that family therapy is so important because let's say hypothetically the child, and I don't know why I keep calling him child, but let the, the, I'm going to say the 16 year old. I don't know. Let's say the 16 year old lives in a highly functioning family where there's no diet culture. There's no this, there's no that, but they have a different personality trait than the rest of the family. So the family doesn't understand their sensitivities. They're, they're, you know, and so family therapy, I get it that parents are like, I'm going to be blamed, aren't I? I'm like, absolutely not. But there is, and parents are like, we don't diet at all. And I'm like, I totally get that. Are you acknowledging your child's personality traits though? Are you trying to tough love them into this when they're really sensitive little beings? Are there dynamics in the family system? Or is this a child with mental illness that does need a little bit more understanding? Like there's just, there's so many, there's so many reasons why when it's a teenager or adolescent that families, I think, need to be involved. I agree. And it, again, I think family therapy too is a hard sell for some people um, or for some families. And because, yeah, there's like, I don't want to be blamed. I don't want to be the person that gets like the finger pointed at them. But I do think it's just a matter of 
every person in a family dynamic is going, you know, is going to be different and is going to respond to each other differently. And sometimes there just needs to be a little bit more guidance around how to do that. And especially if the, you know, the child in the situation, whether or not they're a child or an adult, has just some dif- has some differences or, you know, feels feels othered in some way. Yeah. Which I, I mean, I know was my experience because I'm quite different from my family. And, you know, and I know it's interesting, my sister's experience has been that way too. The two of us are just like highly anxious, um, very uh, like anxious temperament. And, and my sister, I think even more so than I am. And it was just often approached in the very, very much that like nineties way of, Oh, like just shh, shh. <laughs> like it's, it's okay. It's going to be fine. Just, just get it, get over it. And that, yeah, that's hard. I also always want to give parents some strength <laughs> and support. And by that, I mean, if I were going to use my own family system, I am the youngest and the only girl in my family. And my two brothers and I, the three of us could not have different personality traits. Imagine being a parent and trying to, in a healthy way, adapt to all of your children where one's quiet, one's crying all the time, one's defiant, and you're like, what do I do? You know, it's really, and so I also say to parents, I want to help you. My gosh, that sounds like a lot to navigate and then throw an eating disorder into the mix. Wow, you really need some support. Right. And and a lot of it is a lot of my work there, I would say, is validating the parent's experience without invalidating the child or invalidating the client. Because and especially if the client is viewing their beha- like the parent's behavior as as especially problematic, which it very well could be it still doesn't mean that they don't need some validation around the work that they're trying to do or how the ways in which they've tried to cope. It's, it's a very weird balance to strike. And I certainly struggle sometimes because I mean, I am a very passionate person. And when it comes to my clients, I am like mama bear to the extreme. Like I have the pitchfork, like I'm ready. Like don't, don't fuck with my clients. And it can be really hard sometimes to be really nuanced in how, in how you approach parents when from, you know, when I'm thinking of, of that place, like that I certainly get to, um, because, you know, a lot of my clients, and I think this is just the case for most folks with eating disorders have been traumatized, not necessarily just by their families, but by a number of things, but, you know, family can certainly enact a lot of trauma and it can be really hard to approach families with kindness when, you have information about the ways in which they have been extraordinarily unkind. Um, so that's, you know, I think that's certainly our uh, our work as therapists is trying to play that objective part while also still being protective of the people that were, you know, are under our therapeutic care. And still try to help the entire family system to, to right. navigate in a different way. It- it is, it is really hard work. You know, anytime I do a podcast or talk about my job, I, re- I remember that the work I do is hard because so often, you know, when I sit and work with clients, it's, I was, I was told early on, um, you know, it's like riding a bike, you know, once you, once you start to do it, it's, go- it's going to seem like you've never stopped doing it. And like, there's never been, you know, some other way. And now I'm like, 
yeah. Like anytime I really like stop and take stock, I'm like, this work is really hard. It just doesn't always feel as hard when you're in the middle of it, except of course, in times where, you know, you do have something challenging happening, but like talking about it now, I'm like, yeah, oh God, like this, this is really hard work. And there are days when it feels wonderful and rewarding and amazing. And then, yeah, there are a lot of other times where it's like, why have I chosen this? Why did I do this? This was, this was a mistake, abort. Well, I think what, what we're all really good at is being present with our client in the moment. And then after, um, and I I know I'm, I'm sort of stumbling my words here a little bit. I remember that about halfway through the pandemic, I'm involved in all these like professional Facebook pages. I say involved like I'm a, like I do work on it. <laughs> I basically just scroll through. And that's involvement. Right. That's it. And a therapist wrote this large paragraph about what it's like being a therapist during a pandemic, during political upheaval. during racism, when your clients are coming to you for all that stuff. And then at the end of the day, you still have all that stuff on your own to process. And it really took my breath away because it wasn't until I saw it in writing. And this woman wrote it so eloquently and so beautifully that it really took my breath away. I was like, wow, it, it is sometimes, it is unbelievably challenging being a therapist during certain times in our lives. This past year being one of them. I might've seen that as well, which it's bizarre that it seems like a lifetime ago reading that, but you're right. Like I think, especially in the past year, it's, in some ways, I think there's been this like opening almost of like, hey, therapists are people. I've had, you know, I've had a lot of clients be a lot more, I don't want to say more sensitive to that because I think all of my clients are really wonderful in that way and sensitive to like who I am. And, but I do think there's more of like a asking how you are as the therapist and really genuinely asking, not just as like a, colloquial, hello, how are you? But like, hey, like, you know, I know life is hard right now. Like, how are you doing? Granted, it's always like a really curious question to either dodge or answer. But, um, you know, I I do feel like it is one of those times where it is, you know, sometimes it is okay to to answer. Um, Honestly, I, I think back to in Texas, and I think it was in February, we had that awful, like, I don't, I don't even know what to call it, but it was a, an ice storm, ice situation in which people were without power for a week. And I, I mean, I was living through that with clients. That was not like, okay, we're just having totally separate processes. Because I think in the pandemic, you know, everyone is sort of operating at a different place. But this was like a leveler. It was like, yep, we're all kind of hanging out without power and haven't showered in a while and (laughs) all of these like really unpleasant things that I really did feel like I couldn't answer clients honestly like yeah this is what's up um you know but I'm here to be present for you Mm -hmm. like how you know how can I do that and how can you trust that I can do that and 
you know, I, I do think that is, again, it's a hard part about being a therapist. It's like, there is acknowledgement more now, I think, than ever that we are also people in the room. And it's not just where like a, I don't know, sounding board necessarily. Okay. Can I ask a logistical question? And then we're going to have to start wrapping this up. Yes. How did you do therapy that week if there was no power? How did, how did clients, Ugh. how did you have power for your computer? So I, I live a little bit outside Austin, which Austin seemed to be very, very impacted um, in that, you know, there were folks without any power for at all for like a week. I remember. For me, I like, we were pretty, pretty lucky in that we had, um, there was one day we had like power for like 45 minutes and then it would go off for two hours. We would have power for 45 minutes. It would go off for two hours. So, and that was just like all day. So, I mean, I would, I would try to make use of that time. And for, I mean, for me, work is a distraction at times and that I really was able to use it as a distraction while also being able to support my clients. But there were, I mean, there were a number of days where I canceled sessions and because like clients couldn't, it's not like they could sign into their computer. Um, you know, it was a lot of phone sessions and phone support and just trying to really, trying to really view it from more of like a community aspect. Like how do we support each other? Like, you know, how can I show up for you and do what's, what works for you right now? Yeah, I bet. I bet. It was a disaster. It, <laughs> it truly was. So I, I, I can imagine, I can only imagine yeah. how hard it was to get through it. I, I am really grateful to be on the other side of it. I mean, a lot, you know, unfortunately a large number of people lost their lives because of it. And it, yeah, it was, it was a, another like weird and disappointing aspect of this last year and change that, that, that happened. Um, so I am hopeful it won't happen again, but Oh, who even knows? Yeah. Texas is a weird place. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Jess, we're going to have to start wrapping this up. And I'm wondering if there's anything I didn't ask you that you'd like to share with listeners or just anything else you want to, you want to say before I ask your final question, by the way. Oh, I can't think of anything in particular. Um, I'm really, I'm really grateful to have been here and to be able to talk with you and also just really grateful that people are listening and interested in recovery enough to listen and tune in. I think that's an incredible thing and really cool part about podcasts. Like you can just have even like 10% interest in recovery and happen to listen to one thing that really like amps that up maybe to like 25% interest. And that is a really cool that's a really cool part of podcasts and just social media now in general, I think. I agree. I agree very much so. All right, Jess, I do have to ask you your final question, though, which is, if someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? That's okay. I mean, it's really, it's such a good question, um, and I should have been more prepared. Um, you know, I... I love the, there's this um, E. Cummings quote that has stayed with me throughout my recovery. And maybe it's too, um, I don't know, uh, too optimistic to think someone would write something nice about me in the bathroom <laughs> stall. But um, I, the, the quote is nobody loses all the time. And yeah, which is really 
one like something that I have taken with me throughout the last God decade plus of my recovery. And I just, I would really want, I would want to write that on the bathroom stall. And I would hope that maybe someone would uh, write it and think of me. Um, But obviously I would not be, you know, that quote could not be attributed to me, but it is something I would love to see on a bathroom stall because I know that when I saw that, it really changed my life. It is a really powerful quote. It's, It's powerful and compassionate all at the same time. And it's really lovely. Yeah, it's a favorite. All right, Jess. Well, thank you for being a guest on the show. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. It's a wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Real talk with Recovered Professionals, and I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.